Today's episode of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Legend Rings. Want to give your student-athletes something that'll create excitement and loyalty in your program? Go to legendrings.com and see how colleges all over the country are doing it right now. Plus, stay tuned later in the show for a special offer just for you, Coach. And now, it's time for the show. That's right. It's time for our big Season 6 premiere of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. With your host, our nation's most trusted podiatrist and America's recruiting guru, Dan Tudor. That is right. Season 6. Unbelievable, Coach, that we've been at this for six years on the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. I'm Dan Tudor. So good to be talking to you. And listen, I want to start off by saying thank you, thank you, thank you for the previous five years of following, commenting. Hopefully you have gone into your podcast platform and press like, given us five stars. All that good stuff helps us in so many ways when it comes to podcasting uh, out to the public. But I just want to say thank you for all the great comments that that we've had. Um, And I am really looking forward to this season of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. We have some great stuff lined up. I'm going to be honest, last year was tough just because of everything else going on. 2020, I mean, uh, it was just uh, just a slog. And I think we put out good stuff. But there were some times where it was hard week to week to really focus and because we were so busy with clients. We were so busy maneuvering and helping them maneuver uh, really once-in-a-lifetime type changes and things that had to adapt. Uh, and so I think the podcast was just it – was, it was good. I love doing it, but it was harder than most years. This year, hey, we all feel I think like there's a little bit of a reset button that's been pushed, and I'm all for that. Um, we're getting back out onto campuses. It's exciting to see some energy back on college campuses. And with that, this season six premiere of the podcast hopefully uh, is going to be uh, the start of a great, great uh, season six. And we're going to start it off with uh, really a fascinating topic with a really interesting author. Hey, so many of you are focused on leading your programs, leading your student-athletes, creating culture, accountability, all those things. Well, how would you like to learn those lessons from a former naval officer who worked on a submarine during the Cold War, uh, patrolling the seas, uh, keeping track of the enemy, and and really doing some incredible things day-to-day that most of us would take for Granted, that it's even going on, and yet it does in our armed services. He performed those duties, and as a young junior officer on the USS Tennessee, he learned some incredible lessons on how teams of people can work together in close, stressful situations and come out winning uh, by performing well and having a culture that works uh, again, under the, the least uh, of perfect circumstances. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about. That's why I wanted to have him on as this guest because, look, for many coaching staffs, that's what this year is all about is how do we get back to performing well under a stressful situation, less than perfect circumstances, and still come out working together strongly. That's what this lesson is going to be all about. Um, you can go to his website. We're going to link to all of this in the show notes of the podcast, but I'm going to give you his website right now so that you can uh, make a mental note to go back and look at it because he has some great resources, great tools, fantastic books 
Uh, his his latest that we talk about in the in the podcast is a book called All in the Same Boat, and the lessons that you are you can learn from uh, from a nuclear submariner, uh, and that is John Rennie. So his website is John J O N S Rennie R E N N I E dot com J O N S R E N N I E dot com. Really recommend it. Fantastic conversation that we had. I want to let you kind of listen in, learn, and and again, there's going to be so many things that apply to your coaching world and the recruiting world straight from, uh, again, a naval officer that operated and helped uh, uh, run a nuclear submarine during the Cold War. Fascinating discussion. Here's how we started it off, our conversation with John Rennie. But being all in the same boat is a kind of a unique concept. So as a, an experience, as a, uh, my experiences as a naval officer on a nuclear submarine, all in the same boat meant we were all in it together. I mean, literally in it together, in a steel hull all together. And so there was something unique about that. It was a shared responsibility and shared vulnerability. And what that meant was, is even your most junior sailor, if they made a mistake, we could all perish. You know, we wouldn't, accomplish our mission and get home safely, right? So we were all in it together. We depended on each other to keep each other safe and to get home safely, carry out the mission, get home safely. Now you're comparing, contrast that with maybe, um, you know, certain businesses or even sports teams where when people are in it just for themselves, right? Or in, in for their particular career or their stats or their numbers versus not in all in it together, that's when the team falls apart. And I saw that a lot in my days in corporate America. And um, and so I really talk a lot about, you know, kind of being all in it together for a shared mission uh, and that you're all in it together. And it doesn't matter what your rank is or where, you know, how many years you've been on the team or how many years you've been on the boat. We're all in it together. Your most junior sailor, your most junior, your most, uh, your freshman, you know, your most junior player can screw up and cost you a game. Same thing. It's screw up and cost you you know, our lives. So yeah, that's what it's all about. So as you're, I'm sure this was the case uh, in uh, in the Navy, but you have people who want to make this a career. They have, you know, they're on the boat as, you know, as a, a junior member personnel uh, of, in this case, a submarine, but they want to rise in rank. They're going to maybe make this their career. They want to climb the ladder. And I think the same holds true, well, and certainly in the business world, but also in the you know the coaching world, the college sports world, where you have somebody who is an assistant coach or uh, you know a, um, uh, a GA working for free, and they're trying to get their foot in the door, or you have a head coach that's a program uh, in charge of a program, and they have eyes on a larger program or a higher level. Um, so you, it's interesting you, what you talk about. There's two competing forces. There is what I want to achieve personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, what what ha- you have to all be rowing in the same boat. And I guess my question, and laying all that out, is what happens when what would what would benefit me personally in my career growth or developing you know my career as a coach uh, when that doesn't align with or or would come into conflict with what some of the bigger goals are for the organization. Um, how, how does that happen? Because I think that happens a lot in the college coaching world where an assistant coach may not agree with the head coach on a strategy or on a direction for the program, but yet they're there to serve and be loyal to that head coach and, and, and vice versa. So I'm just curious about your thoughts of, 
of how how you you uh, yeah you balance out those two things, those two competing interests. Right, right. So you know, of course, I've I've not had experience uh, from from a coaching perspective right. or a team perspective, but I spent uh, you know I, uh, my time in the Navy, twenty two years in corporate America. Now I'm an entrepreneur. But one of the things I saw in the in working in the corporate world for 22 years, and during that time I, I ran eight different manufacturing plants, is I saw people that were more focused on their next job than their current job. In other words, everything they were doing was to make sure that they got into that next role. And you see it sometimes too with, with coaches where they're their mind is not in the present, their mind is in the future, or their mind might be in the past where, they, where, where they've screwed something up or they can't get over a particular issue. But I think the, the leaders that I've seen being most effective are the ones that can, can live in the present. They can act towards the now, right? Take care of what my role is today at the best, absolute best of their abilities, and then opportunities open up for them right? It's when you take all your time spending on trying to position yourself in a certain direction that I think many people see that you're, you're just, you know, you're, you're looking for the next rung in the ladder and you're not actually focusing on your current role. And that's, that's a big problem. My wife always laughed at me because she said, you, you've been dragged kicking and screaming up the corporate ladder. So I didn't try necessarily to get my next job, but I kept getting promoted, kept getting more opportunities, more and more responsibility because I did my current job very well. And I think that's part that we have to remind people, do your job right now really well to the best of your abilities. And then those those opportunities are going to open up. I'm just going to ask too, because you kind of uh, flicked the switch in my mind as you were talking, what is the worst job on a nuclear submarine? Like what is the, <laughs> what is the thing that nobody wants to do that, but yet it probably is important because there's, I would imagine there's no unimportant jobs on a nuclear <laughs> submarine. So, you know, as, as when I came on board, I was a junior officer. The most junior officer was an ensign. That's uh, it's the first, it's the first rank you get as an officer, right? And you're also, when you first get to the boat, you're not qualified. And they call you a nub. And nub means a non-useful body. So that's that's our fun way to say that you're useless. You're 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 breathing people's air, you're eating their food, and you're adding no value to the boat. So when I first got on board, my first question to some of the other junior officers that have been there a while is like, what can I do right now to add value? And um, the, the, the ensign from the last patrol came up to me and said, hey, there's this job that only the most junior guy can do. It's called the battery charging lineup officer. And I can help you get qualified. So because he wanted to get rid of the job because it's mm -hmm. a crap job. It's the lowest level. But what it meant was you had to crawl through the boat with a flashlight and you had to make sure all of the valves in the ventilation system were in the proper in the proper settings and go into the battery well. Of course, this is a submarine, so it's a dark, cramped place, and you had to measure certain things on the battery. You had to make sure everything was lined up properly, and then you basically report to the officer deck that everything's ready for lineup, uh, for a battery charging uh, lineup. So what it was was um, there was a big concern with hydrogen gas. When you charged a battery, hydrogen gas would build up. So we had to make sure you ventilated all that gas out of the boat. So it was an extremely important job, but it was always given to the most junior of officers. So it was a, it was a grunt job. And so for my first patrol, which was a three-month patrol, that's all I did. So I got woken up in the middle of the night. I crawled through the boat with my, you know, my trusty mag light and uh, down in the battery well where I got acid burns on my clothing. And, and, uh, and that's what I did for three months. But I, you know, through those nights, 
uh, I knew I was keeping my shipmates safe. I knew I was doing a job as vitally important and, um, and, and carrying that out to the best of my ability helped protect my shipmates from, you know, a hydrogen buildup or a potential explosion. So even the most junior role like that, I was doing something very important for the boat. And and the reason I bring that up is because again, you have a lot of coaches in different stages of their Mm -hmm. career at the college level. And there are some things that, you know, they're going to do begrudgingly or they didn't sign up for, but it's like I said, they got their foot in the door and this is what they're going to do. Can you just, what would your message be to that younger coach uh, that who is doing something or in a position or at a school where they don't necessarily like right now uh, and, and maybe doing a, a thankless job that the outside world's not going to, not going to see. And even maybe they're thinking, how is this going to help me in the future, get to the place where I want, what should that mindset be uh, as, as they start a new recruiting year and a new college coaching year? Yeah, it just goes right back to what I was saying initially, which was just do that job to the best of your ability, right? And 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 you know, I think if you take care of the small things, the big opportunities will make themselves available. You know, if people are watching you and saying, "Okay, he's junior. Yeah, he's doing that grunt job that nobody wants. He's lining the field, right? He's painting the field, or whatever." I don't know what kind of junior level job would be, but something right. like that, right? Sure. But, but taking the things, time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, taking the time to do it right and, and doing it with care and doing it and asking questions like, hey, um, I want to make sure I'm doing this right. Is this the proper way? Just, you know, being engaged and doing that job to the best of their abilities, I think is really important. I think one thing to be careful about, and that's something I learned in the corporate world is not getting stuck in a certain area, right? Not being so good at a junior task that you're not given those other opportunities. So of course, making you know, making people aware that you are interested in doing more. And the other thing I always talk about is the idea of skill stacking. So look for those opportunities where you can gain additional skills so you can set yourself apart from your peers. So what does that mean in the coaching world? I'm not exactly sure, but I know in the corporate world, I was volunteering for everything. So as a as a young person coming out of the military, going into corporate world, there was always an opportunity to volunteer. They, you know, they, they have all employee meetings. Hey, we need somebody to do this um, help with this employee survey. I'm like, I'll do it. Uh, we need somebody to be an internal auditor. I'll, I'll do it. You know, we need someone to do it. So you kept raising your hand. And eventually you, you, I stacked so many skills up as a young engineer working in corporate America that they gave me my first manufacturing plant at just 32 years old. I gained all these skills. I'd shown the ability to do multiple things. Uh, I was very responsible with my time. I got my, I met my deadlines and they're like, this, this kid can do a lot more, you know? And so I think, I think skill stacking is really important. Take care of your, you know, take care of your role, whatever that is to the best of your ability. I think those things really go a long way. That that, that is so, uh, I think insightful because a lot of coaches get into college coaching because they love to coach. They love the competition, mm. the strategy, maybe developing athletes. Yeah. And yet that's about 20% of their job. And the other 80% right. is, you know, is all those skills that they probably don't want to learn, but really need to learn. Mm. Uh, so that, that, that is a, a fantastic just reminder, uh, especially for a, uh, uh, a younger, a younger athlete or I'm sorry, a younger coach that is mm. involved with, uh, with athletes. Um, in the book, all in the same boat, and we're going to link to that in the show notes for anybody listening uh, as a coach who wants to read this or any of the other books that John's uh, written. Uh, and there's there's two other ones that we'll talk about. But uh, in this book, you're talking about the importance of letting people fail. And mm. uh, and 
I think college head coaches and even athletic directors, the thought of failure scares them because failure in their world means you might get fired. Failure on a nuclear submarine would mean even worse than that. Um, so it seems like there's a lot at stake. We're in a culture that, you know, we don't want to fail. If you fail, you're, you know, you're a loser and you're not qualified or we need to fire you, bring somebody else in. Can you talk about the concept of letting people fail? Why is that a good thing for a, um, a leader to, to let happen? And, and just talk about that a little bit. Cause I, I think that is one of the things in college athletics that, uh, gets a lot of pushback, that idea. Yeah, and it's that way in corporate America too. So sure. um, there's no time for failure, right? There's you got you got deadlines. You got you know in in coaching you got games. You got to prepare. You have no time for failure. So in corporate America, what it translates to is that you give your more difficult tasks to your more senior people. So the senior people are doing all the difficult stuff. The junior people are standing around going, "Why can't I do that or give those opportunities to me? I'd like a chance." Right. So the and, junior and that people, happens a lot in, in college coaching staffs too. Right. Where right. So the you don't want to give up this. Yeah. 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 So the junior people don't get those opportunities and the senior people are doing all the work and the senior people are stressed and the junior people are stressed. So one of the things they did really well in the submarine was to give junior sailors, junior officers, those opportunities to fail. And uh, I'll never forget that. You know, I tell a story in the book. <clears throat> I was the officer of the deck and I was training a new junior officer and we were taking the boat to periscope depth during casualties. So we were going to evaluate him how well he was at doing this job where he had to go to periscope depth and then I would turn the hydraulics off on the scope. So I made it very, very difficult to turn around. So my captain was observing me training a junior officer. And, um, you know, there's certain things that we have to do when you're coming up to periscope depth to make sure that there's no, uh, nothing, there's no debris in the ocean or a sailboat or anything that doesn't make noise that could potentially be a hazard. So we do, we, we, we took, we take the optics of the scope, we point it right towards the surface and we rotate the scope. <clears throat> and we do that very quickly. So we, as we're coming up, we can make sure there's no shapes or shadows, anything could be, uh, you know, could be dangerous to the, to the boat. And we only say one thing after we get, after the scope clears and we're, we, we're, we're safe, we say no close contacts. And if we say anything else that the team is trained to take the boat down to safe depth again. So if I go, oh crap, they take the boat down, right? So, so there's a very uh, systematic way you do an observations on the way up. Well, when we do it in a casualty, we turn off the hydraulics. So it's very difficult. So I did this to this young young officer, and he was small in stature. And during the casualty, we were simulating a fire, and so all of the air conditioning went off as well. So it was very hot in there. He was wearing glasses. He's small in stature. He struggled getting that scope to turn, and he started sweating. And his glasses fogged up. And so as the officer of deck, I felt like he wasn't doing proper searches. It was dangerous. Like we could be in a dangerous situation. So I made the mistake in front of my captain to start helping him. So I grabbed the scope and tried to help him rotate it so we would do safe rotations. Right. And my captain chewed me out. He said, let him fail. And I was like, Oh crap! What did I just? Do? I, I thought I was doing the right thing, keeping right. the boat safe. But what was interesting in that observation is that he wanted that that officer to feel what it feels like to fail, to not do his job properly, and to learn from it. Because failure is such an emotional teacher, right? We don't like. I mean, as people, we don't like to fail. It's embarrassing. It's um, you know, it's not good for our ego, right? right. But those things, those those moments where you do fail, you learn so much. So he failed on the scope but I failed as an instructor 
And I, I felt that sting. He felt that sting. And I think those are really valuable things. And we do have to get those time, uh, give those people, give our people those opportunities to fail, but in a controlled manner, right? So we, where the captain was watching all of, you know, he was, he knew what was going on. He was yeah. watching. He, he knew that the boat was safe, but letting people fail in a controlled manner is a great teaching tool. It, it really helps them, you know, Maybe there's a game that's not on the line, and you want to give a junior guy. Okay, you're. I want you to coach coach up this this uh, for this uh, period, right? And just to see what happens. Give those opportunities, and when they when they fall on their face, you know those are valuable lessons, and those are great times to teach. Um, here's what you did wrong. Here's what here's what I thought you did really well. So a more senior person can get that opportunity to coach up the younger. Uh, coach, yeah, right, or even in a in a practice or something not as important as a as a contest. Exactly. But like, that's an excellent point because again, that's something that doesn't happen much in the college world. Uh, it's you know where you give people the opportunity to fail because everything is you have only such a, a, a limited amount of time to get stuff done, and just mm. again, like on a on a submarine, you're going to um, uh, you're going to miss those opportunities to let people fail. And I know. And I'm sure you would say this too, both as a you know directing large manufacturing facilities and as a speaker and an entrepreneur. You learn. I, I've learned much more uh, from my failures than I have from any successes. Yeah, all the reasons, and yet we forget that as we're as we're leading, which is uh, which is an amazing thing. You also talk in the book about uh, which I thought was is really an interesting concept. This no escape mindset, which on a yeah. submarine easy to imagine because. <laughs> Uh, we've we've all watched submarine movies. If you're a Tom Clancy fan, and you know Hunt for Red October and right. and all the rest. Um, but what what is that? Maybe explain it for for uh, us non Navy folk, and and why or how that translates to an organization of any kind, whether it's business or or athletics. Yeah, the no escape mindset. Just the idea that um, we couldn't. Um, we couldn't choose our the people that work for us, and we couldn't choose our peers, and we couldn't choose our captain. We were all 155 of us locked in a metal tube for three months at a time, right? So that provided an interesting dynamic, right? So it doesn't matter, you know, if you're a coach or you're in a collegiate environment or you're in a company. If you if you're at odds with somebody, you can find ways to avoid them, right? You know, you can sure. you know if you're if you're in conflict with somebody, you can learn to avoid. You can find ways to avoid them. We couldn't do that on the boats, right? It was cramped spaces. Right. We worked, you know, shoulder to shoulder. Um, if you had a problem with somebody, you had to work it out, right? Um, if you didn't agree with somebody or saw did couldn't see eye to eye, you had to find ways to figure out how you're going to work together, right? So, um, and, and by the way, the coaches who just heard you say that, who are working in a very small space sometimes uh, <laughs> with the same group of people during intense times for a long period of time, they they resonate with what you're saying, John. I just yeah, wanted to, yeah, to point that yeah. out, but continue. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think I think when you have that mindset that, okay, I'm not going to be able to escape the situation, I'm going to figure out a way to work it out, right? So um, I'll give you an example. We had sailors that worked for us that were, you know, they were problem. They had some challenges, right? And so they were, but we figured out how to make the most of that particular person and their quirks or what certain things that they were motivated by and certain things they weren't. So we had to figure out how to make that puzzle piece fit. We weren't going to get any more puzzle pieces. This is all we were given. And I think, you know, from a coach's standpoint, these are the players you have, you're going to go into the season with. And maybe this person's got some strange quirks, but how do they plug into the puzzle to make that, that, that complete? 
And, you know, I tell the story about a challenging petty officer I had working for me that um, he was, whenever he was bored, he'd get into trouble. And I noticed that like a trend, like he, when he wasn't bored, he was, he was a phenomenal, um, a phenomenal sailor, one of my best. So one of the things I learned was don't let that guy get bored. So I gave him opportunities where his mind was always active. I gave him the hardest, uh, you know, maintenance items uh, to, to, to be able to do. I, I had him training all the new reactor operators because he was such a good reactor operator. All I need to do with him was don't let him get bored. And so same thing, like you, if you have a no escape mindset, you say, I'm going to work with the people I have. I'm not going to go thinking, not daydreaming about, oh, I wish I had this player. I wish I had this. No, this is what you've been given. How can you make that work to the best of, you know, the best of its ability? So I think that's that's that mindset. It's like working with what you have, the people that you have. Liking what you hear on the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast? Then you're going to love our special training and information site, Honey Badger Recruiting. It's where Dan Tudor and his team of experts answer recruiting questions, publish the latest trends and research, and give college coaches the next level training they need to connect with their prospects. Visit dantutor.com and click on the Honey Badger link to become a subscriber. And if you're already signed up, make sure you're up to date with all the latest information the Tudor Collegiate Strategies team has for you today. Again, just go to dantutor.com and click the Honey Badger link. It's your secret weapon in the nonstop battle to win the best recruits. Hey, Coach, it's Dan, and it's a fact. A lot of college athletic departments are trying to figure out how do we regain our momentum? How do we build the culture we want? And most of all, how do we create dedicated alumni? When they leave the program, they stay involved. They stay dedicated. They say good things about us. Well, I have an answer. LegendRings.com. You heard about it maybe on the podcast last year. So many coaches and athletic directors went over to legendrings.com and were blown away by what they could create and design on their own through the website to give their student athletes. This is something that they remember. This is something that every athlete in the country wants to have, which is a memento of all the hard work they put in. Now, maybe that's for a championship season, an MVP award, or just because you want to give your team something to remember the year by. This is the answer that a lot of coaches are turning to, and and it is so incredibly budget-friendly, it's going to amaze you. So go to legendrings.com, and if you do, mention that you heard it from Dan Tudor and the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. They are going to give you a special gift as a coach. You're going to love it. That's legendrings.com. Go take a look, Coach. Heading into the most challenging recruiting year of their careers, what are more and more college coaches and athletic directors using to give them an edge? ARI Recruiting. It does more than all the other recruiting contact management apps and websites do. With no lag time, no lost information, and plenty of next generation features that has it beating the competition day in and day out. Oh, and did I mention it's probably a lot less than what you're using now? Go to ARIRecruiting.com now, get a demo, and find out why this is the recruiting tool you've been waiting for. And if we went bigger, bigger picture, because um, you talk in the book also about, uh, you know, how to create this mindset throughout an organization. And you know, obviously the Navy and the way you're describing a nuclear submarine working, which I would have imagined this would have been the case, very systemized, very procedural. They they figured out what the right system is there. And now they're duplicating it ship to ship. And and the job of the, the 155 on board is to carry out that mission and 
and you know do do what their uh, their individual duties are, are supposed to do. But it's striking because on a ship, I'm imagining you have the leadership as well as then sort of the um, the 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 juniors and 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 hmm. the, uh, the the people that are are in charge of the different facets of the ship or or doing the active hands on work there. And in the coaching world, you have your coaching staff and you also have your team, which are two completely separate mm -hmm. groups of people. And yet, if you're the head coach or even an assistant coach, you have this leadership uh, responsibility, both to your fellow leaders as well as to the uh, um, the athletes that you're coaching. So my question is, in the way that you saw it operate on a, a nuclear submarine, is it the same approach that you take? Let's say I'm an assistant coach and I'm listening to this. The same approach, uh, the same approach I take with, with the staff that I'm a part of, and with my head coach, who I may ne necessarily even like a lot, or I've figured out what I don't like about him or her, and I, yeah. but I'm working there, and and then I apply that same thing to the athletes that I coach. In other words, is there a different approach that you would take on the ship, with, as a leader with the other leaders, and then also with the uh, the people who have the hands-on duties around around the vessel? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just like, you know, anything else, you know, your peers, you know, you manage your peers and your bosses a little differently than you man manage the people working for you. But um, one of the things that was really unique on the submarine that I really tried to put in place in my in my corporate jobs as well is the fact that we worked together. So we um, it wasn't um, one of the things I talk about in the book is eliminating us and them. Right. So we we tend to, especially in businesses, we tend to point fingers a lot like oh it's marketing's fault or it's engineering's fault or it's um uh you know the guys on the top floor they're, they're not they're not building it per the print if they build it per the print there wouldn't be this problem right so we do a lot of internal finger pointing and one of the things that um you know i i, I talk about in the book is working together you know towards a common objective right so and that is having those working together shoulder to shoulder and, ha and having some common experiences and so i think whether it's working with um, you know your peers, the, your bosses, or the people below you, it's always about being kind of shoulder to shoulder and, and having those shared experiences. So you build up uh, a relationship together. So um, when you're when you have an us and them, you're separated, right? You're you know all the teams over there. These guys did that, you know, or you know, right. this, you know, the coaches over here. It's it's trying to make sure that you have those opportunities where you have you build relationships. And you build shared experiences. So one of the one of the um, things I found a lot a lot in corporate is that we we separated. We were you know the office people were over here, the manufacturing people over here that didn't have any common experiences. And so one of the things I did differently was um, like we had this thing called Fridays on the floor, where the management team would go out one Friday every uh, once a month, first Friday of the month, and we'd go work for four hours uh, on the shop floor, a different place every every month. And what that did was we built relationships with the with the people um, on the shop floor. They saw what we did. We saw what they did. We learned what the true problems were. So, you know, how does that translate well to coaching? I'm not exactly sure, but the point being is that um, anything you can do to, to eliminate that us and them mindset and to try to build a cohesive team is really, really important. So try not to be that person that's the finger pointer. You know, try to find those ways where you build unity. One thing I always they always taught us in the Navy was the enemy was outside the hull. And it has to be the same thing with your organization and your team. The enemy, which potentially is your competition, right? Your, you know, the other schools or what have you, is outside of the organization. It's outside of your, 
you know, of your four walls, uh, you know, uh, so, and, and not inside. And so if you can get that mindset in that organization, you're going to do a lot better than if you're in fighting and pointing fingers and, right. and uh, you know, that that's really important. And you're bringing up some of the, the, the situations where there could be conflict or, or teams mm. don't perform well together. Um, from your experience in, in the Navy, because I'm imagining that that not every Navy vessel is uh, completely unified and has great leaders and the system never breaks down. I mean, it, it has to. But just in your experience, talk about, or maybe if you can, talk about where you saw I think low performing or disorganized structure or teams working on a vessel and comparing that to uh, what you're describing there, where it's, that is very systematic. It is very well run. Um, I, I'm just wondering when, when you've seen, uh, when you've seen situations not play out the way it was designed to play out, mm-hmm. um, what, what was the result? And, and the reason I'm asking this is because I think a lot of coaching staffs may be listening to this, might be feeling like we just aren't hitting on all cylinders or this group I have just, we, we just can't figure it out. And maybe there is no mm. system in place and I'm the head coach. And I just think, well, they should just know how to do it. That has <laughs> to be happening on, you know, on some vessels somewhere. I'm just wondering wh- where are the lessons there? What have you seen uh, be the results of that? Yeah, I would say in, in, in the Navy, at least in my experiences, is that those things happen, but they're pretty rare because, mm-hmm. because I would imagine, I, I would hope yeah. so. That's yeah, good. because there's there's peer pressure, right? There's 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 heavy positive peer pressure to for people to do their jobs and do their jobs properly. So, um, if something is out of whack, it tends to self correct itself by just by the nature of the way we go through this qual- rigorous qualification processes before, as you move up. That being said, in in the business world, uh, I have taken over businesses that were just pure chaos. And the reason they're chaos is, um, I would say, a, it, I would call the best way to describe it is absent leadership. So you have somebody who supposedly is the head of the business, but they're distracted. They're, they're in their office all day long with the door closed. And so people are, you know, kind of left to, you know, to figure out things on their own, right? And so good people when left on their own will, will come up with different uh, ways to accomplish the task, right? So I've come into businesses where it was completely chaotic, and the reason was is the prior management, you know, wasn't wasn't uh, having regular meetings, they weren't communicating, they were just kind of left to their own uh, devices. And so when people are left to their own devices, there tends to be debate, just uh, you know, arguments, internal conflict. And so I think part of the job of management is to minimize chaos, right? Is mm-hmm. to uh, is to build that, um, you know you know, well-run ship and make sure that everybody understands, you know, what is the mission of this organization? What is the mission of this team? You know, Um, and you might say, well, it's to win games. Well, is it, or is it to win games in in a certain way? You know, what is specific about this team? What is special about this team? And, um, and just sort of getting all of those people lined up towards that mission. Now, you know, you've heard the expression, um, you know, make sure everybody's rowing, in the same direction, right? right. That, that's a common expression. Something I've, I've learned in, in, my, in my time in corporate is also to make sure that there's no one drilling a hole in the bottom of your boat as well. So that's what I found in corporate. There was always like you get 98% of the people rowing, rowing in the same direction. Then you find a few people that were trying to sabotage your uh, your boat. 
And I would imagine that in any organization, people are people. And there's always going to be a couple of, there's always going to be those that are going to try to sabotage because they don't like the direction. And so you have to be careful to watch out for those as well. But I think it's the responsibility of the head of the organization or the head of the department or the head of whatever whatever you're responsible for is to make that a smooth running business. That's really important. And if there's chaos, it's, it's typically a lack of leadership. I love the idea that a leader's, uh, whether it's a coach or an entrepreneur or a uh, submarine captain is to minimize and lessen chaos, uh, to get hurdles yeah. out of the way of people. And uh, so that, that that is a fantastic concept. The, I, I guess the other question I have too is um, it, throughout that, what you just were talking about, it kind of goes to that, uh, one of the other things that the book focuses on is shared responsibility and, and being vulnerable. And I think it's the second part that any coaches, because yeah. it's an athletic, very competitive environment, yeah. Yeah. Uh, have trouble doing is I don't, especially if I'm a second year assistant coach, I don't want to show that I'm vulnerable because that might translate into she doesn't know, or he doesn't know what, mm. what they're talking about, or they're, I can't trust them with that next thing I was going to hand over. And as the leader, if I'm vulnerable, um, then they're not going to respect me or listen to me. Can you just talk about that? Because if that's happening in a positive way on a nuclear submarine, I have to think it would work well in college athletics as you're building a program and building a coaching staff. Yeah, no, I think it's it's really important. Vulnerability is a kind of an interesting issue. Some people think it means weakness, and it's not weakness, right? It's the ability to say that I might not have all the answers, right? And the ability to listen and to discuss uh, what challenges you might have with your team to be able to identify maybe other solutions that you hadn't considered. I, I learned a little bit about vulnerability when I got my first manufacturing plan. I was 32 years old. I came into this business that had a lot of problems. Um, and then I noticed that everyone in every one of my managers and the employees had far more experience in manuf- in running this manufacturing plant than I did as the young plant manager. And so, you know, I came into the role thinking I had to have all the answers. Well, what I learned was that wasn't necessarily what I needed to do. I needed to kind of turn off that. I have to have all the answers to focus on, okay, where do the answers reside in this organization? Who knows best how to do X, Y, or Z? So it's being able to tap into the the team and the collective knowledge of the team and being able to find the best solutions. And that means getting out, spending time with people, closing your mouth and listening, right? And um, we we tend to think as leaders, we should do more talking than listening. And I say probably just the opposite. If you think about it, you hire a consultant, right? You know, you've heard the, these stories, right? Consultants come in, what do they do? Is they interview all the employees. They, they ask them what's working, what's not working, what could we do different, right? Then they write everything down. Then they go to management team and they say, here's what you should do. Well, where do you think those ideas came from? Right. They they came from your organization. Like you could do that too by by just doing you know. And and when I take over a new business, that's actually what I ask is, I I interview all the people and I say what's working, what's not working, and if you were in my job, what would you do first? And you know what? Every time I take over a company, it always coalesces around one or two things that have to happen. And then I go do one or those one or two things, and people think I'm I'm amazing as a leader. And I'm like, no, actually, you told me what to do, and I just figured it out. And that's I that's the idea of being vulnerable is sitting right. back and saying, I'm going to listen to some other ideas other than just my own idea. Right. And the, fl- the flip side of that too, that happens a lot on college coaching staffs is 
there are some coaches that are so vulnerable, especially in a leadership position, I, that it's not going to be my way. I don't know everything, and I don't want to be the top-down, you know, yeah, heavy-handed, yeah. you know, coach. That it's it's sort of a a uh, you know democracy in a bad way. That that yeah. look, if yeah. you know, it's your idea. I'm not going to do anything that's going to upset anybody, and I need all your ideas. And and then you get into you know, just nobody's really you know. Um, taking leadership and ownership of, of the direction. And I mentioned that because from what you just said, along with just the idea of this very systematic top-down approach to making a nuclear submarine crew work together yeah. and work efficiently, yeah. there has to be an aspect of somebody that says, here's where we're going. And yeah. here's, oh, absolutely. here's what to yeah. do. And so yeah. basically not be afraid of being a leader because if I was afraid of being a leader, I wouldn't be a good submarine captain. Right, exactly. So yeah, absolutely. So, you know, part of it is taking an input, right? But then it's, I'm going to put the rudder in the water. So right. I'm I'm setting the direction. Mm. I've listened to all of you. I've, you know, I always say, when I take over a new business, I say, for the first 90 days, I'm going to do some listening. And I said, the next 90 days, you're going to do some, you're going to do some listening. So in other words, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take everything I can in. And I'm, I'm trying to do it non-judgmentally, right? I'm like, sure. I want to listen to everything that's going on. I say, but then, okay, this is the direction we're heading. Right. And this is how we're going to do it. And this is who's going to do it. And so but I think you have to have that time where you listen and you and you get the input and you and, and you hear what people are saying, and what the concerns are and where the, you know, check in that temperature of the organization. But then you've got to put the rudder in the water and say, this is where we're headed. Now, the other thing I would say is this is um, you have to be able to change course. Right. So you have to be able to move. You have to move the organization in, in, in a certain direction and then be open to, to what's not working and be able to switch rudder if you need to, to, to steer around an obstacle that you hadn't considered. So I always say, make decisions fast, but then be open to fixing it along the way and correcting it along the way. Got it. So um, as we start to wrap up the conversation, uh, I just taking all this information in, uh, you're talking to coaches maybe that need to make some changes. Maybe they just took over a program, uh, just got their ship for the first time. They're a new captain, <laughs> yeah. uh, whatever the case may be. And they're figuring, they're, they're listening and saying, okay, all sounds good. And I picked up a couple of things, but where do I start mm. for an organization that doesn't have the kind of structure or philosophy that you've been outlining for the last half mm. hour or so, what would be the first three things that as a coach, involved in building a program that I would want to make sure got put in place initially that I can build on and, and sort of build out this concept, John, that you're, that you've outlined in the book uh, and yeah. in your, all three books really, but then um, it would allow me as a coach then to, to move forward and build it the right way with a good foundation. So maybe can you give us a couple yeah. of those foundational points that you'd recommend? Yeah. I mean, I think again, Coming into a new organization, I think it's spending time listening, you know, and observing and, um, you know, and and um, not commenting too much, but but really having a chance to observe. And then I would say this, and this is really important. I do this every time I take over an organization is do one big thing that gets everyone talking that says, this is the way we're headed. This is this is my coaching style. This is my leadership style. So I'll give you an example. I came to one plant and I noticed that every manager had an assigned parking spot, you know, and um, I just thought that was really bizarre. You know, we're all in it together. We're, you know, there shouldn't be anyone with special treatment. So I, I, I just got there to this organization. I saw this and I said, this goes against everything I believe in. Right. So I hadn't even done any conversation with anyone. I said, I saw that. That doesn't make sense. I'm against that. 
So I said, who's the maintenance manager? And they said, this guy over here. I said, come over here. I said, go get some paint. I want you to paint over all those. You know, it was like a concrete block with everybody's name on it. Mm-hmm. I said, paint over all those. I said, we are not having uh, assigned parking in my plant as long as I'm the plant manager. That's all I said. He did it. And guess what? Every single person, there was 250 employees in that plant, got the message that this is what Rennie stands for. So find one thing that gets everybody talking. Do that one thing that um, gets gets the entire organization to understand that there's a new leader and this is what he or she believes in. And this is what their principles, this is what they stand for. So what is that one thing that you could do? I don't know what it is, sure. but what's the one thing you stand for? When you you walk in, you observe something, and you say, this is not going to happen on my watch. And I and do that one thing and it gets everybody talking. So I, I like to do that as a kind of a little bit of a shock to the system that there's sure. a new sheriff in town. Yeah. Well, but it also establishes your position as the leader and right, and right. very simple way to do it. Doesn't cost anything out of your budget. Maybe a little paint in that instance, but not, yeah. not anything. Yeah. You know, a lot of time and effort and energy, but it it sends the message. And it struck me too that um, we kind of went about that. You know, setting up some of those foundational things. If you're taking over a new program or you're a new coach, but those would work if you've been the coach at a program that are at a college for five years or six years or ten yeah. years. To, yeah. to, Pause. Listen. What do we need to do differently? And yes. and and yes. every with every team that comes in because every team is different every year yes. to yes. do one of those big things that that kind of you know establish the 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 thinking for the year. Absolutely. You you know I think it's it shows that what kind of leader you are if you say these things like, look, I've been the coach here for five years, and I think we've done a lot of great things. But as I sit back and thought about it this off season, I realized that I am doing this whatever the issue is, I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing this well enough. And I am committed to this season to fixing that. And I am going to do this. I don't know what the, what the thing might be, but, and I want you to hold me accountable. If I'm, if I'm not doing that, I want you to say, coach, you said you were going to change and, and, and we're still moving that direction. Help me to be accountable. I think that shows authenticity. It shows uh, that you're, it's, that you're, you're more relatable when you say, I have I've made a mistake and I'm going to we're going to change the direction. I need you to help me hold me accountable to that. And I think those those are you can do that. You can do that if you've been the coach for, you know, five, 10 years and you say, you know what, I, I really feel like to get the teams I want or to get the performance I want, or I, we've got to move in a different I've got I've got to move in a different direction. So, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's definitely you can do that as a, as a new coach or as an existing coach. So, Coach, the major thing that I took away from talking to John Rennie in the conversation we had was how important it is for everybody to understand what each other is doing. Everybody is performing their assigned functions, their tasks. And when you're doing that, you're working together. Everything operates smoothly. When one part breaks down, you begin to see cracks in the organization. And, of course, on a nuclear submarine, that literally can mean death because you're surrounded by thousands of pounds of pressure uh, of, of the sea all around your submarine. In a coaching office, it can mean that you lose your job, which either one is horrible, and we want to avoid each. And how do you do that? By applying the lessons that John Rennie talked about. Again, his website is John S. Rennie, J-O-N-S-R-E-N-N-I-E.com. He can talk to your, to your, to your team, your athletic department, um, fantastic organizational training, 
uh, that, that, again, brings it from another perspective that most coaches have never dealt with and that, that you can learn from. Um, so I really recommend it. Fascinating book also. If you're looking for a book to give your team here in the new year, uh, that you want a reading project, you want a book for everybody to read and talk about and learn from and discuss and apply – all in the same boat is fantastic for teams. So we want to thank John for being our guest. I want to thank you again for listening to the start of season six. I'm so excited, Coach. And hopefully you get a chance to um, to email, email me, um, talk, um, subscribe to Honey Badger Recruiting. Go to dantutor.com, all the resources we have there. We're constantly adding to that. Um, and, and being out on campus, we hope 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 that you can get us to campus so that we can train you all the things that have changed and wow have there been some big changes over the last 24 months that has affected recruiting um if you have any questions about anything that we do or how we can help you as we get into this new year dan at dantutor.com is my email address i'd love to talk to you but again thanks for listening keep listening please tell your fellow coaches to listen to the college recruiting weekly podcast we do it for you coach that's who we're doing it for So it's going to be a great year. Keep track, follow, subscribe, like all the stuff you're doing on, uh, on, uh, you should be doing for podcasts. We would love it if you did it for us. And we will keep bringing you the best of the best here on the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. The College Recruiting Weekly Podcast is a production of Tudor Collegiate Strategies. For more information on everything we provide college coaches, athletic directors, and the rest of your campus, visit dantutor.com. Thanks for listening, coach.